Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm Mark Yacono, the host of Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. This is podcast episode number 35. My guests today are Chelsea Castro and Nora Bergman, who have partnered together to write a book that will be coming out very shortly called 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers. Rather than attempt to talk about their fabulous backgrounds, I'm going to ask Nora and then Chelsea to introduce themselves, and then we'll talk about the book. So Nora, would you please uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yes. Um, thank you, Mark, and thank you for having us here today to talk about our book, which we are super excited about. It's going to be released on uh, May the 26th. I am a licensed attorney here in Florida. I've been licensed since 1992, practiced about nine years as a litigator, and decided to make a career shift. Uh, I, for myself, I found that uh, litigation wasn't something that I really enjoyed, and I uh, became the executive director of a bar association for a while, and then I shifted years again and got trained as a practice advisor and coach with a company called Atticus, and I have been coaching and consulting attorneys through Atticus since 2006, or I should say with Atticus. I also work with bar associations and legal aid, legal aid organizations around the country. Um, and I think ever since I became a bar exec uh, nearly 20 years ago, my passion has really been to help lawyers live healthier and happier lives, although I didn't put it into those words before. Uh, and I think that this book has really the fruition of um, so many years of reading and studying and, and, and wanting to share information that lawyers aren't typically exposed to and give them concrete ways to apply what they learn. Well, thank you for that introduction. It's refreshing to have a guest on who has been in this area for such a long time. And it's especially refreshing to have someone who has come not only from practice, but from the Bar Association uh, perspective, because I know a lot of quiet work with local and state bar associations has actually been going on for a very long time. Chelsea, would you um, refresh our audience, since you're a repeat guest, one of my few, about your background and um, the focus of your work? Happy to. Thanks for having me back, Mark. Uh, it's always so great to be here. So uh, in a nutshell, uh, I, like Nora, I was a and actually still a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan and the District of Columbia. When I practiced as a an attorney, it was primarily in the field of international regulatory compliance, so mostly Foreign Corrupt Practices Act uh, type matters. And, you know, I got a point to a point in my career where I realized I just wasn't uh, really having fun with the law. And while it's a wonderful profession, I came to a point where I realized this is not what I wanted to do for the next uh, however many decades. And I went back to uh, what was had been a passion of mine long ago and realized that it was a way for me to serve the, the legal profession in a different way. And that was to become a psychotherapist. So I went from lawyer to psychotherapist. I'm also a performance coach and consultant at times. And, you know, it's, it was one of the hardest decisions I ever made, but also one of the best ones. 
Uh, prior to starting my own company and of course collaborating with Nora here on this book, I was a director at the Lawyers Assistance Program. And that really got my feet wet. Uh, it wasn't just firsthand experience that I had working in firm culture as a lawyer, seeing not just what my I was going through, but what other uh, lawyers went through. But then when I got into the Lawyers Assistance Program and uh, really saw the other side of it, it opened my eyes dramatically to the great need that goes beyond even just the things that are highlighted in that oh so important study from Hazel and Betty Ford in 2016. It, the, the struggle is, is very real. And, and for many lawyers, it might not be that raised to the level of, you know, that clinical anxiety, clinical depression, but it doesn't mean that we don't need resources and to put practices in place to help improve our well-being personally and professionally. And my time at the Lawyers Assistance Program really helped me conceptualize that and prepared me for the work I've been doing for the past few years, which, you know, has been like the best decision I've ever made. So yeah, it's it, it was a long journey, but it's been a good ride. Yeah, and it's fabulous to have you both. And one comment about the lawyers' assistance programs is that a lot of the discussion around mental health in the legal profession has been sort of big law centric about poor, overworked associates and demands of being a partner at a major firm. But the vast majority of lawyers aren't at big law, and lawyer assistance programs are very critical intake engines and resources for lawyers who, who need assistance, whether they're a solo practitioner at a small insurance defense firm or a major firm. And I think that that, that topic doesn't get discussed enough and, and will be on the agenda for another day. Um, but I, I think it's really important to note that lawyers assistance programs touch a lot of lawyers all the way across the spectrum. And that's a really important thing that state and local bar associations offer. So Nora, you have written a few books, but this one you have written with a partner, Chelsea. Tell us how you two came together to collaborate and why you decided to have a collaborator on this one. Absolutely. Um, just a bit of background. Uh, my first book is a book called 50 Lessons for Lawyers. Earn More, Stress Less, Be Awesome is the subtitle of that book. And uh, that book started really as a compilation of blog posts. I'm a journalism major from my undergrad degree, and I've always written. And I got the idea for that book in 2016, and it came out in 2016. And I immediately started thinking about the next book, which was, which was originally going to be a book about mindfulness and meditation and the value of it for lawyers. Um, and then while I was writing that book, as that book started, um, the Me Too movement rose up. And the, there was a lot of conversation about women in the law. And I shifted gears and uh, wrote a book with the help of 49 other women lawyer collaborators and contributors uh, called 50 Lessons for Women Lawyers from Women Lawyers. Uh, unfortunately, I did not know Chelsea at the time or she would have been one of the contributors to that book, I'm certain. Um, but we had contributors from all different areas of life and law from private practice solo practitioners to private practice big law attorneys to state court judges, federal court judges, appellate judges, law school faculty, 
women who have left the law and become entrepreneurs, other authors. Uh, it's just a fascinating compilation of each woman's story and the lesson that she would share uh, with other people who read the book. So I'm only one of 50 contributors to that particular book. So that was released in 2019. And the concept of the Mindful Lawyer book got shelved, pardon the pun, uh, while I was writing that book. And once that book was released, I circled back around and decided that it really made sense to perhaps expand the focus of that book from beyond simply mindfulness to what it means to be a happy, healthy, resilient lawyer. And as part of that, in 2021, I began um, interviewing people for this, the book. And I had attended one of Chelsea's trainings on burnout and was so impressed by it. I reached out to her and asked her if I could interview her for this book, which she graciously agreed to. And um, you know, I just really, everything she said just really resonated with me and we hit it off. And uh, I finished that interview and started thinking about the idea of reaching out to her and asking her if she would collaborate with me on this book um, because of the wealth of expertise that she brings you know, from, from her background uh, in psychological sciences and how she works with her own clients. And um, from there, we just kind of got to know each other. And uh, thankfully, she agreed to collaborate with me on this book. And uh, it has been just a total joy. I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a lot of work, but um, enjoyed getting to know Chelsea and um, having the opportunity to write this book with someone that brings her breadth of knowledge to it. Well, that's a fabulous story. And um, it's really interesting how being out there talking about this subject, sharing expertise can bring people who would otherwise not know each other um, together for a dialogue and for collaboration and for elevating the discussion on happiness, mindfulness, mental wellness in our profession. So I'd like to just generally talk at first about the structure of this book because it isn't structured in a way that's like a, you know, do it your sort of sort of like a long sort of narrative book. It's really broken up into components, and I'd, I, I want to understand sort of what you were thinking and give the audience sort of a feel for the the structure of the book. Okay, um, I'll I'll give some feedback on that and let Chelsea chime in too. Um, all of the fifty lessons books. This is the third in the series. And uh, the next one in the series is going to be 50 Lessons for Young Lawyers. Um, that we're not sure when that one will be coming out, but that one's in the pipeline. The structure of the books is written so that they do not need to be read from cover to cover, as you just alluded to, Mark. Um, each lesson is a standalone chapter. Uh, the books are designed so that you can pick them up, look at the table of contents, and start with any lesson that really resonates with you or that you'd like to learn more about. And they are bite-sized lessons. So you can read them. Uh, and then at the end of every lesson, if you want to actually apply what you have just learned in that lesson, there's a section called living the lesson at the end of every lesson. And in that lesson, in that section of the lesson, we give the reader some tips on how to actually do those things that they just learned about. 
because, you know, here's the challenge. I've, I've been coaching lawyers, Chelsea's coach lawyers. I've been doing this for uh, over 16 years now. And the challenge for all of us is to actually do those things that we want to do, you know, and that we know how to do. It's the doing that is a challenge. And there's a lot of information out there about how to be healthier and happier and how to build your resilience and how to take care of yourself and pay attention to your own emotional and mental health. But there's not a lot of information out there that helps people actually do those things in a very simple, concrete way that allows them to take very small steps because those small steps that you can take every single day add up exponentially over time. Um, I, I had the privilege a couple of years ago of hearing Angela Duckworth speak. She wrote a book called Grit. Mm -hmm. And in Grit, she talks about the importance of small steps. But when I heard her speak, she, she highlighted that. And she said, I would encourage people if they really want to make a change in their lives, not just to take small steps, but to take, in her words, infinitesimally small steps, small little things, but do them every single day with consistency. And if you do, you will see the change that they create in your life. So that's how the book is structured. So you can pick it up. You can read any lesson you want. You could, of course, read it from cover to cover. We talk about this in the book. If you wanted to read it from cover to cover and perhaps make it your own one-year course on boosting wellness and building resilience and leading a happier life, you could take one lesson a week and kind of work on it. Um, but it's up to the reader how they, how they want to use information in the book. But what we want them to do is actually use it, actually do it, not just read it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, Mark, that the structure that Nora proposed and had already done su successfully in her prior books is part of what really attracted me to collaborating with her. Uh, it, it basically spoke to my sense of form follows function in that we need to this to actually serve an actionable purpose for lawyers. Lawyers, we all already have too much on our to-do list, too much on our plates, and adding yet one more big concept or big to-do to that is just not going to help. And to Nora's point about all this information out there, uh, I will add that you know, you could spend years going through all the literature out there on resilience and happiness and well-being and lawyers, but who has time for that? And then actually finding the information that's legit, research-based and actionable. Yeah, and so that's, um, that's a really interesting point because in a culture where we're constantly seeing social media, whether it be LinkedIn, which is social media or Instagram or whatever, talk about life hacks or 10 easy ways to productivity. What struck me about your book was two things. While it was broken into sort of these compact modules, there was science attached and, and, and study attached to each section. So it was not just the two of you sort of blindly opining, but you actually tied it to different you know, sources of research or expertise. And then there was the, then there was the, you know, sort of atomics habit type methodology of how to start small steps, which I thought was, 
you know, made the book a functional, makes the book very functional. Mark, you just said Atomic Habits, and that is so spot on. That book by James Clear kind of nails exactly what we would offer to people. Um, this was James easier to read, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Thank you. That's also our goal. You know, folks want small, easily digestible things that they can learn and do. And yes, there's a fire hose of information coming at people from Instagram and uh, LinkedIn and every resource you can imagine that give tips that are that sound easy, like you should meditate. Well, okay, what does that even mean? And just because it sounds easy, you know, things that sound easy aren't necessarily easy. They might be simple, but they're not necessarily easy to do. Um, and we're not implying that the things in our book are necessarily easy to do. We say that throughout the book. You know, you this may sound simple, but simple doesn't mean easy. Um, but those small steps really add up over time. And, and, and Chelsea can probably speak to this uh, more eloquently than I can, but you know, our brains tend to rebel against big changes. They don't like, our brain doesn't like a lot of change. So the smaller the step, the more you can almost trick your brain into not even noticing that you're taking it. And in the moment, you may not see the change to your life or experience the change to your life. But a year from now, when you look back on how you feel and how you respond to the things that happen to you, uh, you will see the difference then. You will not necessarily see it in the moment. One analogy that I always like to use is when I was a little kid and I would sit in the kitchen of my grandfather's restaurant, he'd take out the pizza dough and it'd be this big lump. And he'd work that dough and he'd knead it and he'd pull it and he'd stretch it until finally it was the perfect shape of a pizza. But it wasn't like he just pulled it apart and it was instantly round and instantly the right thickness. It really required that kneading of the dough. And I think um, this may seem strange to you, but your book is kind of like kneading the dough because you're pulling apart you know, and sort of incrementally sort of stretching our, our, our sort of sphere of awareness as to the things that could improve your, your mental state, your happiness. I, I, I love that metaphor, Mark, and we're going to steal that from you. I'm just going to tell you right now. That's yeah, perfectly fine. <laughs> Write it, that down. What's that, Chelsea? Oh, that it, I know I, I love that metaphor as well. I'll be telling your story to people. <laughs> Um, so what you just explained goes right to neuroscience and neuroplasticity, which is definitely a, a foundational concept to, to the approaches we have in the book that yes, we have now found that the brain can change over time. We do have the ability to choose that change, but if we overwhelm that with change and challenge, because essentially change presents itself as challenge in the human brain, which equates to threat, then it's going to be too much and we're gonna scare away from it. But this, if we break it down into much smaller challenges, AKA threats, we can tolerate that. We create a feedback loop in the brain showing ourselves that we can tolerate that little bit of challenge. And then we can move further up the, the hierarchy of challenge. And as you said, with time, and intention and uh, consistency, we'll form that dough into what it desires to be. Yeah, and I, we're gonna talk about different parts of the book that, that really caught my eye. But one of the things I liked, and I've been talking about on LinkedIn and in some of the writing I'm starting to do, 
is the analogy of legal practice to sports performance. And you have a chapter in there that even an athlete needs recovery. And I think that, you know, that notion that you have to push, break down the tissue, then allow it to heal, to grow stronger. It's also true that to build performance, you have to build a strong base. And you can't do that like in two weeks, just going from no activity to high intensity. And I think the way you've laid this out is how you sort of build the base step-by-step step, wherever you choose to enter the 50 lessons for it, you're building that base, which ultimately makes you, you know, your mind able to take on more and more change. So I think that, I think it's actually brilliant, honestly. Well, thank you from both of us. That lesson that you refer to, um, Mark, is lesson 39. Recovery is essential for an athlete's performance and yours too. And you just reminded me of something else about the book uh, that, that we hope helps the reader. A number of the lessons in the book refer to other lessons within the book because mm -hmm. they relate or they build upon other lessons. So that particular lesson that you're referring to about recovery refers back to an earlier lesson in the book about building micro resilience throughout the day and, and yeah. how you can build overall resilience by again, doing simple little things throughout your day that give you breaks and allow you what an athlete would call active recovery. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it is so true. And, and we, we say in the book, you know, lawyers are athletes, your arena is your office. And athletes, you know, marathon runners don't run marathons every single day, all day long, all year long, because they can't do it. But lawyers, for some reason, think that that's a good way to lawyer. And the idea of taking, you know, a complete recovery, step away from the practice and take, God forbid, a vacation uh, is, is just some, is, is a bridge too far. But so, not only for your work product as a lawyer, but for your own health and well-being, you have to take so, care of yourself. So one of the things that struck me about the book, which could be viewed and I think is likely to be viewed on one level is guidance for a lawyer, an individual, is this is really a book that leaders should read as well. Because folks in leadership and folks managing people should have this degree of cognitive understanding of what it takes to have a, a durable, healthy, productive, intellectually engaged group of colleagues and subordinates. And so I look at this book not only as a guide for a lawyer or person, really not just a lawyer, a person seeking to um, seeking to be more more you know ha more happy, more productive, more well, but leaders having the right perspective. And Chelsea, I know you've done some some work on that and have some thoughts around that. Would you care to share? Absolutely. It, it's. Wonderful that you tuned into this because yes, that's something Nora and I definitely talked about. Uh, the The whole idea of lawyer well being needs to be a a both a grassroots up approach and a top down approach. In addition to being the individual being proactive on their own, uh, if we don't all participate in it, there's no way that this is actually going to create the cultural change that we need. And that's where the leaders come in. So I talk a lot about in my trainings and when I'm consulting 
with corporations how the lead if the leadership isn't participating in whatever well-being initiative they're trying to the company is trying to do it is not going to have traction and have the impact that it needs to have so in order for the leadership to actually understand the needs that their teams need to have need to meet it's important for them to have an idea of what's going on in those grassroots they need to come down and actually have a good assessment of what people are needing and this kind of book kind of lays it out yes, uh, kind of very easily instead of saying well no do this do that it's like here's a taste of what science has been showing us your team needs to hear more of here's a taste of what the studies are showing you could proactively model and support in your teams so that they can work and live better you know the interesting thing is Three days ago, we were on the phone with a client who we were helping figure out what the path forward was for their legal department and organizational structure. One of the things we talked about with that client, because it came up in the interviews, was if you don't learn to say no so that work can be passed down to some of the folks that work for you, this constant tension in terms of how busy you are and how well they're developing is going to continue. And when you can't or don't feel you can take vacations without being online or meetings, that is going to trickle down through the organization. And um, while you're not unintentionally creating, you know, a negative climate, you're also, you know, subliminally um, triggering an expectation. Absolutely. And Mark, I know you've heard me talk about well-being washing, and that's an unintentional well-being washing example there where you have policies that people are afraid to take advantage of. And uh, this is why the leadership, it would be it would behoove them to model a lot of the recommendations and the lessons that they see here if they really want their team to take action and really use the benefits. Um, available to their own well-being. So getting back to some of the lessons, lesson number two really struck me because I think you honed in on an, uh, 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 a distinction that I ever, never really fully appreciated, which is the difference between wellness and well-being. And I'd love for you to expand on that because I think most people view those as the same thing and um, wouldn't even think that there are differences or that one might be a subset of the other. Can you, can you share some of that with, with our audience who won't have had a chance to read the book because it'll just come out by the time we go live? Yes. Um, hmm. Let's see. I don't, you know, I said I can kind of go on sometimes with a question like that. But well done. <laughs> <laughs> there is a distinction and, and we sometimes use those phrases, you know, interchangeably, um, but there is a distinction, you know, as we say in the book, um, wellness is not like a passive act or a static state, but it is an active pursuit. So there are, there are activities and things that we can do, choices that we can make. Uh, that move us toward what would be an optimal state of health. And our well-being is kind of part of the concept of wellness. But 
Well, while wellness can be measured, and as we, we talk about in the book, there are dimensions to wellness that have been defined by the Global Wellness Institute, physical wellness, mental wellness, emotional wellness, spiritual, social, environmental, et cetera. Um, those are all concrete things that, uh, there are concrete things that you can do to enhance those aspects of wellness. Well-being on the other hand, even though you sometimes interchangeably with wellness, um, is more of a subjective sense. Our, our sense of well-being is all about how we are feeling. It's more ephemeral. It's not as concrete as the idea of wellness, although they both work together. And in some ways they overlap a little bit. Um, and there are, of course, components also to what has been defined as well-being. Um, we cite, in this book, we cite a hundred other resources. Perhaps one of them is the National Report on Lawyer Well-Being that came out in 2017, where they identified in that report aspects of well-being that are separate and distinct from aspects of wellness. So, can you um, just give me a few of those examples? For, for instance, you mentioned spiritual well-being or wellness. Mm -hmm. I, I like my brain says, well, how's why wouldn't that be like well-being? <laughs> I mean, that's one of the areas that can be kind of overlapish, if you will, Mark. Mm -hmm. um, and, and spirituality does not necessarily mean religion. Um, it's according to the definition by the Global Wellness Institute. It is. It involves our search for meaning and purpose. And by the way, one of the really powerful lessons in this book is a lesson called Get Clear on Your Why, which a lot of lawyers, all of us need to do, but it can be so powerful for lawyers if they understand why they are doing what they are doing. So that's the spiritual aspect of wellness. With respect to well-being, also spirituality and purpose in life, they it speaks to that as well. So yes, there is some overlap. And the distinction is that with respect to wellness, there are things you can do to actually boost that dimension of your wellness with respect to well-being and ha having a sense of well-being in the spiritual realm. That sense of well-being in the spiritual realm would come from things you actually do to support it in the area of wellness. Does that make sense? Um, yes. And it leads me to the next question. Uh, lesson, um, which one is it on the why? Get clear in your eye, lesson five. Number five, lesson five. Why. I wanna know why it's so damn hard to find your why. <laughs> <laughs> well, take it away, Chelsea. <laughs> there are a lot of forces out there um, telling us what our why should be or telling us that we don't need a why, that we should just do. And forgive me if I, you know, stop me if I go on a rant of uh, cognitive behavioral science here and I need to stop. But essentially, Which I love anyway, so go ahead, <laughs> rant away. <laughs> to boil it down, we all inherent, uh, inherit a sense of values from our initial caregivers, our families of origin, our adopted families, our school systems, our culture in general, our colleagues, professions, you, you name it. And uh, for a lot of us, we never really got much of a choice in what our values or 
are wise are. We were just told either expressly or reading between the lines what, what they happen to be. And um, many of us enter the legal field with a lot of inherited values because, I mean, wh why wouldn't we? We're human. We're, we're not taught this kind of stuff in elementary or high school or college even. So we're not taught to question that. Um, and so we go, we chug along through our legal careers with a disconnect to, for a lot of us, why we're even doing what we're doing. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be lawyers or shouldn't be in a particular area of law, but when that disconnect occurs, or then there's a lack of awareness there, we are much more likely to have a greater disparity between our values and our behaviors. And this is twofold because the greater the disparity between our values and our behaviors, the greater the likelihood of anxiety, depression, substance abuse, you name it, developing. But on top of that, the other layer here is that for some of us, we are chugging along in our very ambitious and successful legal careers, uh, functioning under one core value or, or why, like, you know, success or achievement or proving yourself, whatever it happens to be for the individual, which may no longer be one that serves you. And it doesn't need, if that's the case, it doesn't signal that you need to change your legal career. It signals, hey, what is something that serves me now? And to get in touch with what that why is, why you're getting up at 5 a.m. and maybe commuting for an hour to do this work is going to be the fuel for your fire. Otherwise, you're just going through the motions, perhaps for a value that you didn't even realize you held or don't even hold anymore. I think so that's um, a fabulous point. In fact, one of my favorite authors, Gary John Bishop, talks a lot about how those subconscious perceptions and, and, and messages we got a long time ago run in the background of our head and they actually drive a, a belief in our why which might not be grounded on, on on anything but like a false narrative that we've come to accept as true and i think chelsea you've hit on something is that when the why is just sort of assumed as sort of an organic genetic kind of component. Like, mm -hmm. we just don't question it. We just, for whatever reason, we went that path and we find success that way. That's one area where, you know, there's a very, you know, softening of the conditions that could lead to burnout or dissatisfaction or anxiety. It's because, you know, this thing we never even cognitively decided is driving, you know, our why, our, our purported why, as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, doing that deep work of decoding all of that um, prior, prior language and artifact from other people even, not yeah. necessarily even from ourselves. And, and those people, those influences could have been very well-intentioned. It may have served you in a prior time in your life even but it's not necessarily serving you now. And mm -hmm. so question the status quo, question your why. And you know we've made this into one lesson and with action points at the end, like all the other lessons, because it doesn't have to be this big overwhelming endeavor either. It's even just planting in the concept of asking that question can really get you some traction. 
I think um, I think the way that you sort of tie these lessons together throughout the book is really compelling because while you can look, you can enter the book at any point, you know, the, the ability to sort of interrelate with the lessons are and see how they work in harmony or how you can compose different harmonies based on your selection of different lessons, I think makes us a unique resource for people who are trying to make change but don't necessarily know where to start. The beauty of this book is you can start, you can pick a lesson you feel comfortable with and then make your point of entry into the, into the process. One thing I noticed, and um, I, in my mind, I sort of, I don't lump them together, but I see them as being interrelated, is the way in which we view our circumstances and interact with others. So you have a lesson on gratitude, you have a lesson on smiling, on making someone happy, and having a good cry. Um, to me, all of those things are really, you know, lessons in how you can interact with the world and with other people and how that can actually have a positive effect versus an effect of tearing you down. And I'd like to expand on that because I felt sort of holistically there was a theme of humanity and connectivity that runs through these lessons. Maybe I'm wrong, but maybe I'm right. Tell me. Well, I, I think you're right because first and foremost, lawyers are human beings. We are, we are humans. Um, and some of the lessons in this book, again, seem deceptively simple. You know, smile more. Just smiling, the effect of smiling can be profound on you and on those around you. Um, I talk with my clients a lot about the concept of checking their attitude at the door. You know, if, if you are a lawyer in a law firm, and I work primarily with smaller law firms, some solo practitioners, some smaller law firms, up to mid-sized law firms, because lawyers in those law firms and lawyers that are partners in smaller law firms can actually affect real change. Um, they have more control over how they run their practice. And they can do things that they might not be able to do if they're a member of a very large law firm. So I talked to them about the concept of, you know, everybody looks to the leader for how they should feel. Our, our emotions are contagious. People pick up on our vibe. We know this, this isn't something, you know, we just know this because we've been around people that we like to be around because they're fun to be around and they lift us up and they make us feel good and they make us feel happy. And, Guess what? When we feel good and we feel happy, we do better work. We're more creative. We think better. Um, and we all know what it feels like to be around people who are really negative and downers. And they make you, they drive you right down there with them. So these are concepts that don't apply just to lawyers, but they, they apply to us as humans. Um, if I could, Mark, I want to circle back around to the conversation we were having just before about getting clear on your why, because I know we're here to talk about our book. But I want to recommend one of the resources in our book to everybody that's listening to us today. Uh, it is a book written by a man named Stephen Kiva, and it's called Transforming Practices, Finding Joy and Satisfaction in the Legal Life. And uh, we cite it a couple of times in our book, and I would recommend it to every lawyer out there. Uh, Stephen Kiva wrote this book in 1999, and I actually had it as required reading in my alternative dispute resolution courses. Um, and he was 
ahead of his time, I believe. I think his book resonates now, perhaps more than it might have then. Um, and one of the quotes from his book that we included in ours says that caring, compassion, a sense of something greater than the case at hand, a transcendent purpose that gives meaning to your work, these are the legal culture's glaring omissions. And they don't that have really to resonated. be for you. That really resonated with me when I read that. And, you know, it's, it's so intriguing that there are a couple of things out there that inhibit people from feeling that joy. I recently did an episode with a with a, what I'll call a mental health warrior named Mike Kasdan, um, who writes a lot about men's mental health issues and sort of the stereotypical masculine behavior that actually promotes isolation and doesn't promote collaboration and the overplay with this myth that lawyers are stoic, they handle their problems, they're not vulnerable. And so when I read that, that portion of the book and I read that um, section you cited, it's so, um, it's so jolting because it's so distinct from a lot of what we hear about the profession. And, um, you know, that's why I think that when you're able to figure out ways to get to those issues in small bites, gradually kneading the dough and expanding that neuroplasticity, um, it can generate huge value because the stereotypes that we're facing and the perceptions that we're facing about what a lawyer is or how they have to be are pretty heavy. It's a heavy lift to try and change that yourself um, in one gulp. Yeah, that is true. And it is also a heavy lift to just change yourself, but you won't change yourself until you change yourself, you know? <laughs> and, and <laughs> I mean, if you want something to change, something's got to change and it can start with you. We actually have a lesson on compassion fatigue, which, which you were kind of alluding to a little bit there in your comments. Yeah, and, and I, want to, I want to hit on that because that chapter really struck me. Um, as an empath, I, I find myself fighting to draw limits on you know, the, ex, the expenditure of my empathy because often it can do more harm to me than it does good for anyone else. So mm -hmm. I really would like to, I would like you to expand a little bit on what that lesson's about, compassion fatigue. Um, let me just say a couple words about it because it ties in with burnout. And, and uh, I, I look to Chelsea really as the expert on, on burnout and, and how to avoid it. But compassion fatigue and burnout are, are related. Um, and as human beings, lawyers are not immune from compassion fatigue. And that fatigue manifests itself typically in lawyers because they are exposed to the traumas of their clients. So they're, they're kind of experiencing secondary trauma in the work they do every day. And to pretend as though they're not human and they're not gonna be affected by that is completely unrealistic. But again, the culture of the law firm is that lawyers are somehow immune to these feelings or they shouldn't feel these feelings. 
but we are human and we feel them. And, and we cite to a study that was uh, reported that really identified certain practice areas that are more prone to compassion fatigue than others. And actually, interestingly, at the top of the list for compassion fatigue are judges. Why? Judges sit on the bench all day long and they listen to people's you know, pain and stories. Um, but other practice areas like criminal law, family law, personal injury law, um, are particularly prone to suffering from compassion fatigue. And in a sense, we use that lesson to explain it and to identify some of the warning signs of it. But really, Chelsea might have a different perspective on this, but every lesson in this book helps you combat compassion fatigue in some way. They're, they yeah. all kind of work together in that, in that regard. Um, but it, it's different then, but related to burnout. So Chelsea, there were a couple of things about burnout that really struck me. And one is because I'm, I just did a, a podcast episode on burnout and I'm doing some writing on burnout. And one of the, one of my operating thesis is that burnout isn't just about self-care, but the whole delivery of legal services, the use of technology, project management tools, the whole ecosystem is needed to combat burnout. And I, and I acknowledge it to a manufacturing facility where you overwork one piece of equipment and don't use another. So you had kind of a reference in there, I think about not putting fuel in a machine. And secondly, you raised a point that never really entered my mind. And, and I, wanna, I wanna get your opinion you to share with the audience the ethical implications of burnout. Oh, yeah. That to me slapped me in the head like I never thought of it that way. It was jolting in, in, in the most thought-provoking way. Oh, well, great. Uh, well, essentially, uh, as you know, burnout is, is chronic stress. And when we are under a state of chronic stress, our brains are constantly on alert, which essentially means it's constant, our brains are our limbic systems, the fight or flight part of the brain, draw resources from the other parts of the brain so that they can, it can dedicate those resources to what our ancestral brains, which we still happen to have today, evolved to do, which is fight a predator or run away as fast as we can, AKA fight or flight. And we are still functioning with those very same brains millennia and millennia up to today. Uh, thing is, that function, even though we can't help having it, is not serving us very well in the legal profession. Because when we are in that chronic stress, that fight or flight, even if it doesn't feel like an attack, but you are in a constant stressful state, uh, essentially, because our brain is drawing resources away for that fight or flight physical response, we are draining the other parts of our brain. Primarily, that prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for analytical thinking, willpower, decision making, planning, all skills, which all your listeners who are lawyers out there will know are essential to good legal work. So in a nutshell, when we are functioning under chronic unmanaged stress, we are functioning with impaired brains. And we all know at the very least, rule 1.1 of the ABA model rules tell us that we need to provide competent legal services. And that means the best that our brains can. And functioning with an impaired brain 
is not going to provide the best legal services possible. And for a lot of lawyers, it looks like missed deadlines, unopened emails, uh, untimely responses. It, it's, it piles up into what are essentially innocent mistakes that, are, that have consequences, ethical consequences in the long term. Yeah, so the interesting thing for me is that the impact of burnout can manifest themselves in the same way that the impact of substance abuse mm -hmm. or alcohol abuse can, that, that some of the consequences actually are the same, even if you don't drink, if you're just burnt out, your brain can, can function like it's impaired, you know, from a substance. And, and I thought that was fascinating. You know, one of the things that um, caught my mind is I sort of look at, you know, yeah, you really deal with humanity and how you interact with folks. You deal about finding your why, but you also deal with some of the stuff that um, we don't typically think about. And it's about kind of creating the atmosphere we live in and kind of how we, how we manage our resources. So you talk about surrounding yourself with things that you love and about spending money on experiences, not things. Um, and I had just read like the, um, the, the um, simplify um, newsletter that I get every morning from some minimalist. <laughs> and it really struck me that that was an interesting thing to um, interesting lessons to intersperse here because we always think that if we spend money on stuff and we get ourselves the latest equipment or gadgets or things that we're going to feel better. Yeah, there is uh, research out there, again, that, that we cite in the book, that, again, the way our brains work, uh, our brains adapt very easily to new things. So while you may think of a, you know, the joy that you get from the new iPhone or a new car or whatever it might be is essentially fleeting. Although it's a concrete thing, it is separate from you. And the, the researcher Thomas Gilovich, who we, who we quote in the book, talks about the fact that our experiences literally become a part of us. So in that lesson, we, we talk about the idea of, you know, think back on a, on a gift that you, you got as a child that really made you happy. Maybe it was your first bike. Maybe it was, or maybe it was a car you bought for yourself. When you reflect on that and really think about it, are you thinking about the thing, the bike, or are you really thinking about about and what's making you happy and remembering that experience was the thrill of learning to ride the bike or driving that car. Those experiences stay with us throughout our lifetime. You know, that's what came to mind when I, when I read that was some of you or none of you may have remembered that the, there used to be a company called Sims, Cy Sims that sold fashion at a discount and I remember going into downtown Buffalo because I was um at an age where I needed a suit and I bought this beautiful PR card and suit for $99 I paid for it myself and it wasn't so much that I spent $99 it was the feel of the fabric it was the ability of clothes to transform you know how you presented yourself it wasn't at all about the suit itself it was about the 
the visceral reaction you get to well-crafted things that um, make you feel good. It wasn't really about spending the money. It was more about that experience. I've never forgotten it um, because it was such a, such a just it, like I reverberated with joy, not from acquiring it, but just from the process of appreciating the craftsmanship that went into it. And that's what I thought of when I, when I got to that chapter, which is mm -hmm. a minor digression that probably no one listening cares about, but there you have it. <laughs> um, we're about coming to the end of our time. Um, your book's coming out on May 26th. How are people going to be able to, to buy it? I pre-bought it, I think through Amazon, maybe. Mm -hmm. It is available now on Amazon for pre-order. Um, and you'll be able, when it comes out, you'll be able to order it, a Kindle version and a paperback version on Amazon, but you can pre-order your Kindle version now. It'll, and it'll be available on most online booksellers, Barnes and Noble and other, other places. And if folks would like to learn a little bit more about the book and us and, and pre-order it if they choose to, they can go to 50lessonsforhappylawyers.com and learn more about it there. So could you both share, you know, how people can get a hold of you, your, your, your social and your, your, your social presence and people want to reach out and follow up or even engage you? How can they get a hold of you? Nora, you first. Me first. Well, the wonderful thing about my name, Nora Riva Bergman, is that I am the only Nora Riva Bergman that I've ever found in the Google machine. You did come up so, first when I Googled you. So if you put my name in there, you're going to find me. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Law Firm Coach. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, my website is a website called Real Life Practice. You can find me there too. Um, so it, I'm not hard to find out there. Chelsea? Unlike Nora, I, my first name has an unusual spelling, but is a common name. So people often <laughs> write out the wrong name. Um, you the so Chelsea Castro but with an SY, you can easily find me on LinkedIn. Actually, that's where uh, I'm probably most easily easily found. Uh, you can read more about my work there, send me a message, connect with me there. Uh, of course, you can always also go to my practice website, with, which is castrojacobs.com. So LinkedIn or the website, probably the easiest ways to reach me. Well, thank you both for being my guests. It's been fabulous. <laughs>